Hi, welcome to my podcast where today I'll talk about Jesus allowing himself to be arrested without a fight. My name is Tim Harner. I am a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and of Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel Series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my latest thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. For this podcast, please reflect on the questions, why is it easier to use violence against someone if we don't know their name? In the Vietnam War, in the Holocaust, why isn't violence by governments or by others the way to usher in the kingdom of God? Why isn't coercion by governments or by others the way to usher in the kingdom of God? What writings of the prophets did Jesus fulfill? What did Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, say concerning Jesus? And now, as I talk about Jesus allowing himself to be arrested without a fight, let's pray that the Lord will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. Today's thoughts are based on the chapter, Jesus Allows Himself to be Arrested Without a Fight, in my book, Hoping in the Lord. The agonizing wait in Gethsemane was over. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, identifying him as the one who should be arrested. The men with Judas stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Along with the large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, there was a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Peter did his best to help Jesus. As they arrested Jesus, Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. When I was summarizing this story from the Bible, my first impulse was to leave out the name of the person whose ear was cut off. Why clutter the narrative with this detail? But then I realized that it is always easier to use violence against someone if they are a faceless person without a name. Therefore, it is always important and worth remembering that each person who is hurt by violence has a name. That is a major reason why the Vietnam Memorial on the Mall in Washington is so moving. It is nothing but a long black wall inscribed with the names of the over 50,000 people who died serving the United States in Vietnam. But it is almost impossible not to cry as you touch a name and realize that it is the name of a person who loved life as much as we all do. In a similar way, the Holocaust Museum in Washington brings home the mind-numbing horror of the Holocaust. How can we ever grasp an evil so terrifying and cruel that it slaughtered millions of innocent people? By giving each visitor the name of a person who endured the Holocaust, 
by letting that visitor follow the story of the suffering and crucifixion of an innocent person with a name. Jesus understood the cost of violence. Jesus understood that each person hurt by violence has a name. And Jesus understood that violence is not the way to usher in God's kingdom. Therefore Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? One reason that Jesus ordered Peter to put his sword away was Jesus' understanding that violence causes more violence. As Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In this instance, violence was also unnecessary. Jesus assured Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus told Peter, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus had more than enough power to prevent his arrest. Instead of using this power, Jesus voluntarily and willingly submitted to his arrest and to the unmerited suffering and crucifixion that followed. Jesus put his hope in the Lord. Jesus truly practiced what he preached. In the parable of the sower, he urged everyone to be like seed sown on good soil, hearing the word, accepting it, and producing a crop thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. To be such seed, we must drink the cup the Father gives us, even when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. To be such seed, we must drink the cup the Father gives us, even when the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and try to choke the word, making it unfruitful. Jesus knew that if he drank the cup the Father gave him, it would lead to suffering, crucifixion, and death. Jesus chose to drink the cup anyway. Jesus still placed his hope in the Lord, even when the cup of life he had to drink was so bitter and hopeless. Because, as Jesus had told some people a few days earlier, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Therefore, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Most followers of Jesus do not have to die literally and lose their life as martyrs. Most of us die symbolically by refusing to let troubles, persecutions, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, or the desires for other things prevent us from doing what God wants us to do. But if necessary, followers of Jesus must be willing to place their hope in the Lord and to accept suffering and death as the cost of their discipleship. How do we know which cup God wants us to drink? We learn by studying the scriptures, praying about their application to our life and mission, and putting their commands into practice. Then our lives will be fulfilled, 
even as we fulfill those scriptures that guide our specific life and ministry. Jesus had spent a lifetime studying the scriptures, praying about their application to his life and mission, and putting their commands into practice. Therefore, now, in the ultimate crisis of his life and ministry, Jesus knew what God wanted him to do. And, like a well-trained athlete, Jesus had the strength, endurance, and discipline to do what needed to be done. Jesus declared to the crowd as he was arrested, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Which scriptures was Jesus thinking about that must be fulfilled? In the broadest sense, there was parallelism between the destruction of the original promised land, ancient Israel, and the destruction of the new promised land, Jesus, the Messiah. As we saw in healing the promised land, the original promised land was destroyed by greed, lies, and violence. Now the new promised land was being destroyed by the greed and lies of Caiaphas and his cronies. Now the new promised land was being destroyed by the greed and lies of Judas Iscariot. Indeed, betrayal for a bribe is the worst form of lie and greed imaginable. Now the new promised land was being destroyed by violence. Indeed, the crucifixion of Jesus is the most cruel, violent death imaginable. Fortunately, the pattern of how God heals his promised land is also always the same. After the exile of God's people in Babylon, God resurrected the nation of Israel using the wisdom of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. After the death of Jesus, God resurrected his suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And after the Holocaust, God resurrected his suffering servant, Israel. In addition to this general pattern of how God uses a suffering servant to serve him, whether it is an entire nation that suffers or a single person who suffers, many Old Testament scriptures are cited in the New Testament to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Indeed, the application of many of these Old Testament scriptures to Jesus' life and ministry was explained to the early disciples by Jesus himself, because not only before his death, but also after his resurrection, Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. One such passage that may have instructed and sustained Jesus in these dark hours of unmerited suffering and condemnation came from a prophecy written centuries earlier. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? for his life was taken from the earth. By letting himself be arrested without a struggle, Jesus was allowing himself to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. During the sham judicial proceedings that followed his arrest, 
As a lamb before the shearer is silent, Jesus did not open his mouth. The result of these sham judicial proceedings was that in his humiliation, Jesus was deprived of justice, and his life was taken from the earth. Other passages from this centuries-old prophecy were also fulfilled. This prophecy about a suffering servant of the Lord began, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. No one can dispute that Jesus acted wisely and that ultimately he was highly exalted. But the path to being highly exalted was not an easy one, even for this servant who will act wisely. In words that evoke images of the mutilation and humiliation endured by one who was crucified, the prophecy foretold, there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. The prophecy also foretold that this wise servant would be despised, as Jesus was despised by greedy Judas, and this wise servant would be rejected, as Jesus was rejected by the chief priests and Pharisees. As the prophet said centuries earlier, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This centuries-old prophecy also described the wise servant's role in fulfilling the Passover as the sacrificial lamb whose blood would cause death to pass over God's people and would set God's people free from their lives of sin. As the prophet foretold, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This wise servant was cut off from the land of the living, and this wise servant was killed unjustly. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Surely the plotting of Caiaphas and his cronies that cut off Jesus from the land of the living fulfilled this prophecy of oppression and judgment that would take away the life of the wise servant. The wise servant suffered this tragic death, even though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In keeping with this prophecy made centuries earlier, Jesus did nothing violent. For his triumphal entry, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king, gentle and riding on a donkey. And when Jesus was betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane, he commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Nor was any deceit found in Jesus' mouth, as he told Pilate during his interrogation, For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Even though this wise servant of the Lord was gentle and truthful, 
yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This perplexing punishment of an innocent servant of the Lord troubled Jesus greatly as he prayed in Gethsemane the night he was betrayed. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, despite the unmerited suffering in God the Father's plan for his life, Jesus, the Son of God, found the courage to pray as a wise, obedient servant, yet not as I will, but as you will. Perhaps part of the reason that Jesus found the courage to remain an obedient, wise servant of the Lord in the midst of tragedy was that this same prophecy gave him hope that, in all things, God the Father works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jesus foresaw, as the prophet had foretold centuries earlier, that even though it was the Lord's will to crush his wise servant and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus had faith that God would resurrect him and his hopes from the dead that God would establish the work of his hands by healing his promised land. As the prophet foretold, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Sustained by the hope that after the suffering of his soul he would see the light of life and be satisfied, Jesus was strong and courageous enough to tell Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And on this night in which he was betrayed, Jesus needed all the strength and courage he could find by hoping in the Lord, because all the disciples deserted him and fled. I pray that you will always find the strength and courage to hope in the Lord and to drink the cup of life that God asks you to drink. No matter how bitter that cup may be, drink it with hope. Live a fulfilling life by fulfilling God's purpose for your life, and learn God's purpose for your life by diligent study and application of the scriptures to the circumstances in which you find yourself. Because in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God will establish the work of our hands by healing our promised land, even when we are despised and rejected by people a person of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. God will heal our promised land even when our best friends betray us and desert us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as on my website, timharner.com. 
My book, Hoping in the Lord, contains citations to sources, including the scriptures. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us and give us peace.